Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today, I'm joined by Mike Phillips of the Turner Endangered Species Fund. He's one of the authors of a recent Viewpoint article in bioscience entitled Rewilding the American West, which describes a plan for repopulating areas of the United States with beavers and gray wolves, who are two species whose presence in ecosystems tends to have very wide-ranging effects. Uh, we had a lot of great stuff to talk about, so with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. Okay, Mike, thank you very much for joining me today. We've already been talking for our listeners' sake for a few minutes, um, but let's turn the conversation to this concept of rewilding. And I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit about what that idea is and what it specifically means in this context. Yeah, you know, uh, rewilding, as is the case with many aspects of this paper, it's pretty simple, really. It's a restoration process that aims to reestablish ecological processes. And this process, the establishment of those ecological processes can involve removing species from a system, non-native species from a system, and it can involve restoring species to a system. Rewilding is not a new idea, for heaven's sakes. It's been around for a long time. It, it, we used to simply say restoration. Just as an example, in the mid-1980s, I was honored to lead the Red Wolf restoration effort. It was the first attempt in the history of mankind to restore a carnivore species that had been declared extinct in the wild. Uh, so this whole notion of rewilding has been around for decades, and it really is all about uh, putting systems back uh, together so that important processes play out. And sometimes that means you remove non-native species, and sometimes that means you restore native species, and sometimes it means you do both. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of wondering, you know, uh, if you could just give us like a, a general idea of what happens to an ecosystem when you, you know, reintroduce species. The article here is talking about reintroducing, you know, gray wolves across, um, you know, 11 different federal lands. What, what happens, you know, and what happened, for instance, in Yellowstone, um, you know, when gray wolves returned to the scene? Yeah, first, let me uh, just, just to be uh, as accurate as possible, James, the rewilding paper that we published doesn't necessarily require that gray wolves be reintroduced across the Rocky Mountain West. We can get to the mechanism that would bring gray wolves back to more of its the species native range in the Western U.S. It's pretty simple. But uh, what happened in Yellowstone when we reintroduced gray wolves? And I want to make sure the audience understands that the aim of the work, which I was honored to lead, uh, the aim of that restoration project was never to restore gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park. That was not the aim. The aim was to restore gray wolves to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is the park and surrounding national forests covering about 15 million, 15 million acres. The reason that's important is that the, the aim was to put in place a population that was big enough, several hundred wolves, to contribute to the species recovery in the, in the northern Rocky Mountains. We knew all along, James, that Yellowstone Park by itself could probably support 70, 80, 90, 100 wolves. That's not bad, but that's relatively uninteresting. Uh, we conducted the reintroductions in Yellowstone because the habitat was of high quality and very secure. So it made sense that we would use the park as the nidus, if you will, the birthing grounds to give rise to a population that would eventually spread throughout the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and that's what happened. Uh, and, and right now, I, I suppose the, the park supports about 90 wolves, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem supports about 350 to 400. So it all came together exactly as we had envisioned, which is not the least bit surprising because we know a lot about gray wolves. We, we had a very good sense of what the consequences of reintroductions would be. 
Uh, we, we also had some sense from an ecological perspective what gray wolves in the park would mean. And it would mean uh, less herbivory. Quite simply, it, most of this stuff is pretty simple. Uh, gray wolves as obligate carnivores were going to push predation on elk in a new and exciting way because they were one obligate carnivore that had been absent for a long time. There certainly were other carnivores in the park that were pressing on the elk population, cougars and coyotes and black bears and grizzly bears. But we knew that if we placed a viable population of gray wolves in the system, that would create even more predation pressure. And that pressure has uh, changed the system. It, it, in my mind, has made the system, the ecological system, especially in the northern part of Yellowstone Park, more robust, uh, more ecologically intact, because there now are fewer elk. And that means less uh, uh, browsing pressure principally on woody vegetation, which changes riparian areas considerably, which generates a host of benefits for myriad species as the riparian areas come back and support a more pronounced woody component. So to some extent, people would say, well, the gray wolves have precipitated a trophic cascade, where the consequences of their predation cascades down through the trophic system, generating a myriad ecological benefits. Uh, I believe that's largely true, but, but it's not just gray wolves. What really has precipitated a more robust uh, trophic cascade is predation in general. Uh, it, it's predation, that ecological process of predation that is so very important. And now with gray wolves and cougars and coyotes and black bears and grizzly bears, uh, the elk aren't quite so common. And because of that, I think the system overall is much healthier than it would be otherwise. Okay, so you have a situation in which, you know, you reintroduce predation at a certain scale and all of a sudden, you know, it kind of rearranges the numbers of different species you have with downstream effects ultimately, you know, going as far as alteration of the landscape and, you know, um, the plants populations that you might have present in this yes, space. Yes, yes. Um, let's now talk about, you know, the other major primary species that was discussed in the article as being a good target for, uh, you know, reintroduction in some areas or revitalization in others. Uh, and that's the North American beaver. Um, what does that species do to a landscape? You know, how does it kind of act as an engineer? Well, beavers are, I think, uh, even more effective as ecological engineers than gray wolves by their very habits, they change ecological settings uh, through their interaction with woody vegetation. They fell trees, they, they hold water through the construction of dams. Their very natural history is all about creating a particular ecological setting. And, and that's why they're far more of an ecological specialist than a gray wolf. My Lord, a gray wolf can be just about anywhere where there's a large mammal bigger than itself to prey upon. Beavers are tied to water right? They, they just are. They just are. Uh, but because they interact so intimately with water, they have this tremendous capacity to change a system uh, by storing and holding and storing water and by directly interacting with vegetation through felling of trees and the like. Uh, because of that, a host of species benefit from this simple practice of holding and storing water. And, and James, that will become even more profoundly important as the Rocky Mountain West becomes more arid. No one should question the wisdom of beavers when we all recognize a need to be forever concerned about the holding and storage of water. They are tremendously important ecological engineers that will become more so as climate change really 
nests itself into our reality. Okay, and I'm wondering now, you know, how do you get this sort of thing to happen? Um, you know, I know you have a political background as well as a scientific one, uh, but these things are not necessarily easy tasks to undertake. I'm sure that most of our listenership will be in favor of, you know, healthy and biodiverse ecosystems. But sometimes the policy part of that, the actual kind of enacting of those types of policies is a bit of a stumbling block. So, you know, in this case, how do you sort of address that issue? Um, how do you actually think about getting this kind of thing done? Yeah, the the uh, the paper, James, that we publish in Bioscience, proposes a Western rewilding network, and three things have to happen for that network to manifest itself. Gray wolves have to become more common. Beavers have to become more common, and across about thirty percent of this area, grazing allotments, livestock grazing allotments need to be retired. Three things. More beavers, more wolves, retiring allotments. The first two are easy. The first two are easy. The first two really only require that people be tolerant. The first two, restoring beavers and gray wolves across this Western rewilding network, only require that people value life. And they stand in opposition to needless killing. Uh, as far as beavers are concerned, uh, they probably will have to be reintroduced to many of the watersheds because they won't get there on their own. Beavers have relatively modest dispersal capabilities. But again, because beavers have a beneficial influence on the nature of water in the western U.S. by holding it, slowing it down, and storing it through their dams and ponds, who in their right mind with aridity increasing, who in their right mind would stand in opposition to beavers? They're just a really good idea. So it would seem to me if you have any sort of ecological sense at all, you ought to stand in celebration of beavers. That's pretty easy. And, and they're relatively easy to capture. They're relatively easy to move around. So they'd be relatively easy to reintroduce. And in the presence of basically suitable habitat, they will do quite well. They are, after all, a rodent. And most rodents are really quite capable. Uh, so that's the beaver play. The wolf play, it's just about tolerance, James. It's just about standing in opposition to needless killing. When you look at the, the Western rewilding network, there's really only a couple of sites where gray wolves would have to be reintroduced. A good example of a reintroduction need is Western Colorado. Well, that's going to happen in short order because of a law that was instituted in late 2020 that says the state of Colorado will begin reintroductions to restore a population of gray wolves to the Western half of the state by December of 2023. That may be, James, the last great restoration need via reintroductions for the gray wolf. If you simply leave them alone, given where they are now, and you stand in opposition to needless killing, they will populate much of the Western rewilding network naturally. Gray wolves do have a respectable colonization capacity. They can get from point A to B, even if those points are distant apart. You just have to avoid needless killing. And, and when people say, well, Mike, that, that's easy for you to say. Uh, what I would say in response to someone uh, that was expressing frustration over this notion of tolerance for gray wolves, and tolerance would promote opposition to needless killing, I said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know, we know from the best science, the most reliable information we have, and be mindful, James, gray wolves are one of the most studied large mammals in the world. We know a lot about gray wolves. We know without doubt that gray wolves are relatively easy to coexist with. It only requires a modicum of accommodation. 
Most gray wolves do not depredate on livestock. Gray wolf predation has not disrupted the apple cart of big game recreational killing anywhere. It doesn't mean that gray wolves on occasion can't cause a problem. And it doesn't mean those problems shouldn't be addressed, but they tend to be very localized, very acute, and can be resolved very quickly using both lethal and non-lethal means. It's the atypical wolf that causes problems. So the wolf piece is largely taken care of simply through accommodation. The third piece of this Western rewilding network that's tough, here's the piece that's tough. It's retiring the grazing allotments. That's tough. That's going to require probably federal legislative action, if not state action too. That's going to require that people embrace a different vision for at least some of the federal public lands in the Western U.S. Yeah. And so can you describe those grazing allotments to us just a little bit? You know, what what are they and, and what's going on and what's the problem that's posed by, you know, livestock grazing in these areas, you know, versus having, say, wolves come in and recolonize? Obviously, there would be some level of depredation, I would assume. But, um, you know, what's the challenge that's posed by having, you know, livestock grazing on these lands? Well, it, uh, it's the intensity of use, James. Uh, a cow by itself doesn't make a wood of ecological difference, but intensive grazing across some of these federal public lands creates a big problem. Our analysis indicated that fully 44 species protected under federal law, 44 species protected under the Endangered Species Act, are imperiled largely because of livestock grazing. Livestock grazing in inappropriate sites, livestock grazing applied at an in inappropriate level of intensity. And consequently, these species would benefit mightily if that livestock activity was removed. Cattle can push a system pretty hard through their foraging activities and the simple matter of them walking about and impacting the soil with their hooves and, and, uh, and, and moving in and about of, of repairing areas. Livestock uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time at the wrong level of intensity can bring about degradation. That degradation compromises species. Specifically, our analysis shows 44 species are threatened by livestock grazing. They would benefit mightily if some allotments were retired and livestock were removed. The system would surely breathe a sigh of relief if that perturbation of livestock grazing was removed. And that sigh of relief would bring about ecological healing, which would bring about more security for these listed species. And, and so for your listeners, please know that we're not suggesting all allotments be retired, 30%. And, and, and we're willing to note that it's only proper that folks who choose to retire their allotments would be compensated because it does represent a need for a new business plan. They no longer can have a business plan that says, I'm going to count on public grass to feed my livestock. So we'd have to provide them an off-ramp in the form of financial assistance. But we also note that most of the beef that's consumed in this country is grown east of the Mississippi River on private lands. It's not, the beef is not produced on public lands in the West. As a matter of fact, meat production on all federal lands accounts for only about 2% of the national inventory. And this has as much to do with ideology and symbolism as it has to do with functional changes that would make a difference to the meat industry. Okay, so this isn't really a case in which, you know, you're promoting any kind of major industrial sort of change to the industry. Uh, it's more of a case of, you know, asking people to reconsider the way that our public lands are administered. That's correct. And how we as a public 
choose to exercise public money to incentivize people to imagine a new future. And, and that incentive, James, is saying, is, say you're a rancher, we say, James, you're going to retire your allotment. We're going to pay you for that retirement because we realize you need some help to build a new business plan. That help could be provided in the form of public monies, the public monies that would move our public lands in a more ecologically healthy and appropriate direction, directly assisting with the recovery of listed species and providing ranchers an opportunity to imagine a different future that was not reliant on public grass. And this isn't something that's going to you know, bankrupt the treasury or anything like that. It's, it's within reason. No, 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 no. And I will, I will remind you, if we worry about bankruptcy, and we should all be mindful of the need for efficient use of public money. I don't want my public tax dollars to be wasted or used inefficiently. The, uh, the federal program that supports grazing on public lands in the Western United States is upside down $125 million a year. In other words, the federal government uses $125 million of public money in excess of what they collect from grazing fees. In other words, the public lands grazing program is a very real subsidy provided to ranchers. Now, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Some subsidies make great sense. But if a subsidy can make great sense, a subsidy can also be perverse and make very poor sense. And I would have you believe, James, as we tried to identify in our paper, there are some allotments where the subsidy to promote grazing is perverse. That makes sense. And I'm wondering now, you know, if this wild, rewilding network were to be implemented, uh, do we still have access to these lands as members of the public who are interested in recreation? I ask this question uh, largely selfishly as a, an avid backpacker. Uh, is it still possible to go out there and, you know, do some hiking and, you know, things like that? Or do we effectively need to sort of wall off these ecosystems from outside use? No, no, no. There's nothing about gray wolves and beavers that would say don't come. Matter of fact, gray wolves and beavers would probably stand in celebration of your presence. If you're going to the trouble to wander around wild lands and celebrate wild lands, they would appreciate your advocacy. So, and these are public lands. I mean, James, you own this country. I own this country. I've said before, Yellowstone National Park is probably the only ranch I'll ever own. Uh, but, but, but we said nothing about uh, recreational activities. They do not contradict the vision of the Western Rewilding Network. Quite the contrary. Okay. That, yeah. That's that's well. That's excellent news. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, so you know, do, are there any other issues? You know, we've talked about you know the the livestock grazers. Do people have to worry about you know things like their pets from the introduction of of gray wolves, or you know, is that is it the is it the kind of thing where we can kind of you know, live and let live a little bit and, and make it work out? Yeah. Uh, gray wolves do not represent a human th- a threat to human safety. That's notable that they, they just don't they, they just don't they they actually see us in an odd way they're very good science james that makes clear gray wolves are probably the first domesticated animal back in the day thousands of years ago i have no doubt that pleistocene men and women and and kids had a relationship with gray wolves that was largely beneficial and symbiotic and as we evolve to present day uh, gray wolves do not represent a threat to our safety, but they will kill pets. You know, they'll kill dogs, uh, for example, and they'd kill a cat. But for heaven's sakes, if you're out hiking in wolf country, I assume that your dog is part of your party and your party's responsibly connected to one another and that you would have control of your dog. And 
and uh, there would be a host of other things that I'd be more worried about with my dog than than gray wolves. Porcupines, for example, can give dogs the blues. I'm telling you, man, porcupines can give dogs the blues. And there are so many other species that that I would be more concerned with in the woods. Uh, elk, moose, grizzly bears, black bears, cougars all represent more of a threat to human safety than than gray wolves do. But I would also have you believe it's those species, it's those modest threats that give the woods an edge that I find attractive. I'm with you 100% on that one. Um, so I think now we've talked about you know some of the potential challenges and some of the benefits um, to a rewilding network of this sort. And I'm wondering now, you know, what are the next steps? What actually has to happen um, in order to you know kind of help realize such a vision? Well, you, you have to get you have to get decision makers involved. You've got to connect this great idea, which really is very simple, and it's just based on three things. And I want people to understand this is not a complicated idea. Restore beavers. That's a good idea. They they help to slow water. They help to store water. As the West becomes more arid, that's good. That's good. Uh, and they, through their activities, generate benefits for a host of species that we all can enjoy. Passerine birds, the little dicky birds that fly about the aspen stems that are so delightful. Got to bring beavers back. Just don't needlessly kill wolves. They, they are not hard to coexist with. When there's a problem, take care of it, but otherwise celebrate their presence as an important part of our country's past and an important part of our country's future. And then retire these allotments. And that, that's a tough lift. I understand that. But it's a tough lift in lar large part because we bought in sort of to the Marlboro man mentality, the John Wayne myth, uh, the livestock grazing program on public lands is a, is a sub subsidized program. And, and in some areas, it probably doesn't make sense for efficient use of public dollars. So in other words, we've got to connect this to decision makers at both state and federal levels. And ideally, we connect this program proposed by our paper to other legislative efforts that are gaining momentum. For example, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, known as RAWA, Recovering America's Wildlife Act, is gaining momentum in the United States Congress. It has bipartisan sponsorship. It would dedicate a great deal north of a billion dollars annually for uh fish and wildlife conservation work in the in the United States, including the Western US, much of the money of RAWA could be used, or some of the money of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act could be used to advance the Western rewilding network. It would be really appropriate to draw attention to the very uh, symbiotic relationship that could exist between Recovering America's Wildlife Act and the Western rewilding network as we have proposed. That's the sort of, uh, 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 what would the sort of organic thinking required to connect good ideas one to another so they grow into an even bigger, better idea. We need some legislative champions that would speak well of the connections between what the federal and state governments want to do and what is called for by the Western Rewilding Network. Much of what we're calling for in the Western Rewilding Network is already being called for by other initiatives. For example, lots of states stand in celebration of having the beaver reclaim more of its historic range. The federal government currently has the gray wolf listed under the Endangered Species Act as fully endangered across most of the area covered by the Western Rewilding Network. That law, James, mandates recovery. So much of what we proposed is moving through the pipeline in other forms already. And so it's in, in large part just, you know, kind of building that groundswell of, of public support, applying pressure to those who are in the position to make decisions and Groundswell of public support and connections, obvious connections. Folks might not realize, holy mackerel, 
the federal government's already committed to wolf recovery. Wow, that makes the that component of the Western rewilding network a bit easier to manage. Wow, the state of Colorado already recognizes the power of beavers. That makes the vision of the Western rewilding network easier to come together. And you know what, James? There's been a movement afoot for probably 20 years, if not longer, by conservation organizations to retire grazing allotments. That's not a new idea. There's been lots of people who have said over the years, holy mackerel, having sheep in grizzly bear country doesn't make a great deal of sense. Maybe we should retire that allotment. And I don't think it's too much for the American public to expect its elected leaders to think in holistic terms and to look around corners. No, that's quite fair. And I think a great point on which to leave the conversation. Mike, thank you very much for joining me today. Hey, James, it was my fun. Uh, Thank you for uh, drawing attention to this important work. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.